0: Um, Like Bill said, I'm a marriage and family therapist. Um, For Mother's Day this year, Joel had the kids all write one of those little things that's like about my mom. And they had to fill in what they thought mom does and different things that mom likes. And my three-year-old wrote that what does mommy do, like mommy's job, is cleaning things up. And I think that's quite accurate. I spend a significant amount of my time cleaning things up. We recently got a hamster as a family pet, so that's added a whole new challenge of cleaning things up. I do that a lot. Um, But I also uh, get to listen to people's stories um, as a marriage and family therapist. And Bill already kind of addressed this first part of my message. And I love that both Pastor Bill and Pastor Jen do a phenomenal job of tending to our emotions and trying to make space for all of us to have different experiences of any given thing. And um, so I wanted to talk today about trigger warnings, Um, Anybody familiar with that concept of a trigger warning? A lot of you nodding, yeah. So essentially it's this idea that um, when something triggers us, it means that we're having a reaction and it's usually something negative. And it can be external, like we start crying. It could be internal, like we we feel like our stomach kind of um, get tight or something. You might be triggered emotionally, um, and your body might tell you that by having tension or pressure. Uh, for example, if you're longing to get married, is my mic sounding okay? No? Okay, okay, it's not, not something I'm doing. Okay, <laughs> thank you. I'm not techie, so whatever you're experiencing. I could also hold the mic if I need to switch. Um, so if you're longing to get married, receiving a wedding invitation, for example, could be a trigger. If you've experienced something traumatic in your past, like a house fire, um, flames, or the smell even of smoke could be a trigger. And so I think Mother's Day needs a trigger warning. Um, I have so many clients who over the past month have been preparing for Mother's Day, and feeling really triggered, and so for some of them, like like Bill said, it's that you had a great relationship with your mother, and you miss her today, and today is a day about longing and sadness. For others, it's that the relationship wasn't good, and so there's a giant hole of rupture and that maybe repair has yet and may never come. There were many Mother's Day in the past where I had recently experienced miscarriage, and so Mother's Day meant holes of not having a baby in my arms and just knowing my baby was in heaven. Um... And of course, there's also the good. There are so many of us that love this day because we have kids who we get to love and who we we celebrate and enjoy. And so there may be some of both. Maybe you're holding some of the good and some of the hard. And I just want all of you to know that whatever you bring today, that you are welcome here. And that even though I don't know all of your stories intimately, our God does. And he sees you and he wants you to be welcome in this space. And so today, I'm going to be talking about shame. I don't know if any of you saw this on the website. Shauna always posts a little snippet about what we're going to be talking about. I have a feeling that might be why numbers seem low today, um, because people are like, let's just go out to brunch early today, because who wants to come and listen about shame, especially on a day that is supposed to be kind of an up feeling, and this feels kind of like a downer, but I promise we're going to get to a good spot in the end, so just stick with me, okay? Okay. So shame around motherhood impacts all of us. If you are a mom, if you have a mom, if you know a mom, parts of this will be relevant. So please stick with me. Shame speaks lies to all of us. John 8:44 calls the devil the father of lies. And later John warns us that the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. First Peter 5 says that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And When we see a family photo of someone who looks really happy and connected and looks like they have it all together, we don't really need the devil to prowl around like a roaring lion. All he has to do is whisper to us that somehow we don't measure up. We don't have it all together. We're less than. Something about us must be flawed. Has anyone here ever heard of Brene Brown? Yes? Okay. So she's a researcher who has been writing a lot of books about shame and vulnerability and phenomenal writer, phenomenal material. So if you haven't heard of her, Google her. She's got good stuff. She defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. And every single person in this room has felt shame. It is a universal experience. Now, Brene says that men and women tend to experience shame differently. So this is about to be an overgeneralization that will not apply completely to every person in this room. But in general, men tend to experience what she calls the shame box. Now, this box has very rigid rules about what men are supposed to do and not supposed to do. Either you're in the box or you're out of the box. It's very cut and dry. And the main mandate comes down for men, don't be weak. So chances are, if you're a man sitting here today and you feel sadness about your own mom, that shame voice might be telling you that you should get over it because that's, you're, you're sounding like a baby. That's weakness. I'd like to tell you that it's not. If you're a man here today sitting next to a woman who is hurting with her desire to be a mom or struggling with her performance as a mom, and you can't seem to fix it or solve it or make it better... I'll bet that Satan is trying to whisper that somehow you're not strong enough, that you're weak. But God says you're not. In fact, it takes incredible strength to sit with someone in their pain and not just try to fix it. Jesus modeled this to us in that he simply doesn't make our problems just disappear, but he promises to be with us in the midst of our problems. Now, women, on the other hand, tend to experience what Brene calls the web of shame. It's this sticky, complex spiderweb of conflicting and competing expectations that dictate how we should act and what we should be. Every move you make in one direction seems to trap you in a different one. So be this, but don't be that. Be honest, but don't make people uncomfortable. Be emotional, but not a drama queen. Be composed and thoughtful and assertive, but don't be a cold-hearted you-know-what. And on top of all of it, make it look effortless. It has to look easy, natural. Don't let anyone know that you're working for it, right? So all of us feel shame. So what does this have to do with Mother's Day? In one of her books, Daring Greatly, Brene writes, Interestingly, in terms of shame triggers for women, motherhood is a close second behind how we look. And bonus, you don't have to be a mother to experience mother shame. Society views womanhood and motherhood as inextricably bound. Therefore, our value as women is often determined by where we are in relation to our roles as mothers or potential mothers. Women are constantly asked why they haven't married, or if they are married, why they haven't had children. Even women who are married and have one child are often asked why they haven't had a second child. You've had your kids too far apart? What were you thinking? Too close? Why? That's unfair to the kids. If you're working outside the home, the first question is, well, what about the children? For women who choose not to work outside the home, what kind of example are you setting for your daughters? Mother, shame is everywhere. It is a birthright for girls and women. Yet another reason that Mother's Day needs a trigger warning. So we know that shame is real, and that we feel it in different ways, and that it specifically shows up in motherhood. And when it shows up, it is difficult for us to be our best selves. Instead, we tend to get caught in this race of trying harder, of doing better, and of attempting to perfect. Now, unfortunately, there is no such thing as the perfect parent, and so we will spend all of our energy chasing something that doesn't exist. Every step towards one value will contrast with another. Be consistent, but flexible. Be available, but encourage independence. Give to your children, but don't spoil. We're caught in this double bind where everything seems sort of like a lose-lose. And so not only do we not know what is the right approach at any given time, but we place our value and success on how our kids respond. So not only do we need to be perfect parents, but we need to have perfect kids. When our kids fail, we feel vulnerable and weak. So some of this perfectionistic language revolves around these thoughts like, I'm not blank enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not strict enough, I'm not patient enough, I'm not healthy enough, I I didn't love them enough or teach them enough or spend enough time with them. So I asked some women in our congregation some of the specific struggles that they deal with most related to motherhood, and here are some of their anonymous responses. I feel like I should want to spend more time with my child. I struggle to balance me time, and I feel mom guilt when I'm away. I worry if I give my kids too much attention. Am I still focusing on being a good wife to my husband? Am I even doing it right? From a woman who doesn't have children of her own, she says it feels like people seem to assume that every woman wants kids and that people need to feel sorry for me. Which as a quick side note, Joel and I have a couple that we are really close to and they've chosen not to have children. And early in their marriage, they were often asked if they were gonna have kids. And when they would say no, People would kind of wonder, oh, are you not able to have kids? And that wasn't really the concern for them. They, they may be able to. They haven't tried. Um, and so then people would think, oh, you just don't really like kids? Well, let me tell you, like, you can actually just choose not to have kids and not hate kids as well, right? Um, in fact, this couple, he's a teacher, and they are some of the most loving and connected auntie, uncle to our kids that we've ever experienced. And so let's stop making those kinds of assumptions, okay? Okay. Other um, concerns from our congregation, how am I supposed to support my adult kids financially or emotionally? How do I know if it 's enough? When is it too much? Did I rely on my kids for my happiness? Am I too involved? Do I need to let go? Did I contribute to my adult, my adult children 's struggles And this kind of resounded for me there 's this nagging feeling that I could have done better. What a burden. <laughs> Right? We give so much of our time and so much of our life to the process of parenting. And then to have these kind of thoughts in your head on a regular basis about the thing that you care the most about. Like, if I felt this about my job, that would already be sad. Like, that would be hard. Oh, am I doing this enough? Am I doing this right? But to think about the thing that most of us tend to care the most about, and these are the thoughts that we're thinking. And so if this is something that you're, is happening in your head, I just want you to know that these are lies meant to shame you and to make you feel less than. You are enough. And so if we as mothers and fathers can bring our best, knowing that our best will look different on any given day, and we allow the best for that day to be good enough, then you'll have a lifetime of living day in and day out good enough enough and allowing Jesus to shine through the cracks. We just keep doing what's the next best thing. Now, my oldest child is only nine, and the way that I've parented him in the next best thing looks a lot different than my youngest three-year-old, okay? So even in that process, my parenting, it's changed, okay? And, and is it better or worse? It's just different, and each kid is different. And so the best thing continues to look different. As followers of Jesus, we can have confidence that Jesus will take our good enough selves and he will make use of it. No matter how small, he makes it enough and his glory can be revealed. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace. So it's his grace. It's not about us. It is sufficient, which means it, not that it will be, not that it used to be sufficient before you did that one thing that was that really bad choice. It's just that right now, at this moment, it is sufficient. It's enough. And so all these lies, if these lies aren't something that you specifically struggle with, then you have the opportunity to be modeling compassion to yourself and to others. As the body of Christ, we can be sensitive to the shame voices of others, and call out truth, and speak life, and remind each other of the enemy's strategies, and what God's word says, and how we can line up our thinking with the kinds of thoughts that Jesus is having about us. And I promise you that the thoughts that Jesus has about you are good. So I want my kids to know that they're worthy. I want them to know that they don't have to be perfect, and that they don't have to hide from me if they make a mistake. Tough stuff is going to come their way, but I want them to be resilient and grounded on who Jesus is for them, I would think most of us want that kind of, of something for their kid, right? But you can't give them what you don't have, right? So in her book, Joyful Intentionality, Alison Bone writes that our first role in the kingdom is to become excellent receivers of the love of God and of his true nature. Joyful intentionality takes the truth that we've heard and allows us to keep hearing it and beholding God until we become like him but we need to fine-tune our ears to him in the first place in order for that process to begin. And so this is sort of part two, okay? The idea of being excellent receivers means we can't be over-focused on performing and perfecting. And I think of it kind of like wearing a mask, right? If I can perfect this image and pretend to be this perfect parent and have it all together, and even if I can convince some of you that this is actually who I am and I get your approval, it doesn't actually land because it's hitting the mask. It's not actually landing on me. And so behind this, I'm still alone and disconnected. And there's kind of this lie that if you really knew, then you wouldn't really think these things. And so that's where shame thrives. And so instead of feeling that we have to be be perfect or have to have perfect kids, we have to know that we're worthy just as we are, that I don't even need the mask, um, and that who I am is good enough. So you're invited to see, first to see your own story and your own reality and to be honest with yourself, and then to allow others to see you as well, to be more honest and more real about those very difficult things that make us human, because shame, as we know, is a part of the human experience. And then we also get to see others more fully. I love this idea of being seen because I'm an attachment-based therapist, and so I um, a big part of what I do is to teach people how to really turn towards each other and be curious about what's going on underneath the surface and really see their partner. And this is attunement. Um, we mo- This is modeled to us in scripture because God is called the God who sees. So, In Genesis chapter 16, there's been this long run of challenges, okay? So Abraham, his wife Sarah, couldn't get pregnant. So Sarah gives her maid, Hagar, to Abraham in hopes that she could get pregnant, which she does, okay? And then things get kind of rough between Sarah and Hagar, like there's some tension and maybe some jealousy. And so eventually Hagar gets sent to the wilderness, okay? So that's where I'm picking the story up. And that is where God reveals himself to Hagar. Now, this is a pretty big deal Because back then, women didn't have a lot of honor. And so the fact that God would reveal himself to Hagar, who was a woman, was really significant. So in Genesis 16, 10, and 11, God speaks to her and lets her know that he has heard her pain. That even if Abraham and Sarah don't understand her pain, that God does. That her cause is in his hands. And this changed everything for Hagar. In verse 13, she says, She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So it's interesting to me that the thing that moves Hagar the most is the idea that God sees her. He also promises that he'll make her descendants more numerous than she can count, which is similar to the promise that God had given Abraham earlier. But she doesn't call him the God who blesses, or the God who intervenes, or the God who fixes, or the God who saves and solves her problems. She calls him the God who sees So who sees you with compassion? Do you see yourself the way that God sees you, full of grace and love? Or are you looking at yourself with critique, letting shame prowl around like a roaring lion, telling you that you're weak or that you're a failure or that you've missed your chance, that you've messed it up? So what if God knows your pain and he offers you grace and he fights for your cause? What if he says that who you are is good enough? In a sermon on Genesis 16, Charles Spurgeon says this. I'm going to quote this, so if you want to just like soak this in, I think this is really good to just let it fall on you, okay? God sees you. He sees you as much as if there were nobody else in the world for him to look at. If I have as many people as there are here to look at, of course my attention must be divided. But the infinite mind of God is able to grasp a million objects at once, and yet to set itself as much upon one as if there were nothing else but that one, so that you today are looked at by God as much as if throughout space there were not another creature but yourself. Can you conceive that? Suppose you are left alone, the last woman, and there is God looking at you. What an idea it would be for you to think of that, that there was only you to be looked at. How steadily he could observe you, how well he would discern you, But mark you, God really does look at you this morning as much, as entirely, as absolutely without division of sight as if you were the only being his hands had ever made. Can you grasp that? God sees you with all his eyes, with the whole of his sight. You, 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 you are the particular object of his attention at this very moment. God's eyes are looking down upon you. Remember that. The name Hagar gives God is El Roy, meaning that seeth. The literal translation is of sight. As she says, I have seen the one who has seen me, it is twofold, right? First, he sees her, so her experience is validated. And she sees him. In the midst of her wilderness, she sees God. And how different things are when we see God in our situation. So where is God in your situation? Can you see evidence of God on the move? Scripture tells us to renew our minds and to take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. It doesn't mean that you lie to yourself and pretend that everything's fine, that it never existed. But it it might mean that you convince yourself or that you, you ask yourself ways you could do things different. And you learn and you grow and you hold the truth that things can be difficult and God can still be working. We see him in our situation, that he is going to find ways to bring about his glory. We find purpose and life and joy no matter where we are in our story. We can receive God's grace in the midst of our weakness. It is embracing what we are doing, that we are doing our best, and we can learn new things It is, it is and keep doing better, excuse me are good enough is good enough. We are good enough because God is good enough. So no matter what kind of mom you had or what kind of what kind of mom you are or what other kinds of triggers you have today, God says you're worthy. So heavenly Father, we just ask that you would help us to see ourselves the way that you see us, that we would look at ourselves and our performance in our lives, um, whether we're mothers or fathers or however we are in this room, that you just would help us to see where you're at in our story and to see ourselves with compassion and grace in the way that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.